Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I am the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. All right, we do have a big update off the top for today. The official CanMed 24 speaker lineup is now live on CanMedEvents.com. This year, we have a great mix of familiar names like Dr. Ethan Rousseau, Dr. Dustin Sulak, Zamir Punja, and TJ Martin, to name a few. And we also have a number of new faces like Kimberly Gwynn from the University of Tennessee, Dr. Janester Wilson-King from Victory Rejuvenation Center, Tim Lefevre from Nalubayo, and more. Check out the full list at canmedevents.com and stay tuned to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast as we will be talking to the CanMed 24 speakers leading up to the event this May. By the way, ticket packages are still available for CanMed 24. Go to canmedevents.com to learn all about the different packages that we have available and all the amenities that come with them. And if you want to learn more about what makes the CanMed Innovation and Investment Summit unlike any other cannabis conference available, check out the link in the show description. Our marketing team put together a great blog that highlights all the ways that CanMed is unique. Our guest today is one of those familiar CanMed names that I referenced earlier. Kevin McKernan is the Chief Scientific Officer and Founder of Medicinal Genomics. Kevin has pioneered the genomics of cannabis and hemp to build a stronger scientific environment for the study of cannabis-based therapeutics and using blockchain technologies for tracking and verifying cannabis genetics. At CAMED 24, Kevin will present understanding the prevalence and risks associated with endotoxins on cannabis flower, which will include novel research he did to measure the level of endotoxins in store-bought cannabis flower. Our conversation covers what inspired Kevin to look into endotoxin levels on cannabis, the microbes that produce endotoxins and their effect on humans, whether remediation techniques mask endotoxin risks, and more. Before we get to my conversation with Kevin, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Agilent Technologies. Whether you manufacture or test cannabis, you face the challenge of delivering high-quality products, increasing sample volume, and meeting emergent regulations. Agilent offers best-in-class cannabis and hemp analysis solutions featuring robust instruments, software, services, and consumables. Their team of experts can develop, implement, and optimize methods to get you up and running quickly. Learn more at Agilent.com. All right, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kevin McKernan. Good afternoon, Kevin. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. I don't know. I don't know where you guys find such trash to come on this podcast, but here I am. Oh, uh, you're too <laughs> modest. 
<laughs> you're one of our best guests and you are our first guest so uh, oh, all right they'll, they can it. never take that one away from you <laughs> so i'm excited to talk with you today about something that's a little bit different because in the past your CanMed presentations and when you've come on the podcast before talked a lot about sequencing whether it's cannabis or mushrooms or even viroids but this year at CanMed 24 you're presenting on something a little bit different we're talking about endotoxins, which isn't just a new topic for you. It seems like it's a new topic for the industry overall. Um, but before we get into how or why the industry should start thinking about endotoxins, I think it's important to explain what they are and why you became interested in, in investigating them. Okay, so uh, I'll start with the why first and then lead to what, well, now we'll do, let's do what they are first. So people know why we're anchoring into this. So um, endotoxins are molecules that are found on gram negative bacteria on their, on their cell wall. All right. So they embed inside this, this lipid bilayer and um, they're, they're known to be really potent anaphylaxis um, agents if they're, if they're found in an injectable. All right. So when I used to work at Agincourt, we had all this demand to make um, endotoxin-free plasmid purification kits. So we had a whole program and a whole technology platform where we we built these magnetic beads that stripped endotoxins out of plasmid preps because hmm. they're um, the, the, if you need pharmaceutical grade plasmids, this is a real FDA concern. You got to test them for endotoxins and get rid of the stuff. But I never really thought about it in terms of cannabis. So honestly, I'd forgotten about it for like a decade, and then. Um, and then the reason they came to our attention is that um, I think it was on LinkedIn. There was a little bit of a back and forth going on about decontamination and mycotoxins. Um, uh, and I think Tess had some really interesting information saying, hey, we're, we're not looking at the right mycotoxins. Fusarium makes them. Bacteria make endotoxins. And then um, another group in Massachusetts um, was asking a lot of questions about, you know, what happened in um, the pre-world facility in Massachusetts where someone died. Um, this has like created a, a big storm here in Massachusetts. The CDC has swept in to start measuring things. OSHA's involved. There's been fines handed out. Um, so um, for those who aren't familiar with this case, um, uh, I, I won't add the patient's name because I, I noticed the CDC documentation didn't do that. So I'll stick to their guidance here. But a patient it wasn't a patient, I'm sorry, it was an employee that worked in a pre-roll facility in Massachusetts, um, had an allergic reaction in the facility and, and like died. And um, and I believe she was a cannabis user. So that everyone everyone was really confused by that. Like if this person was allergic to cannabis, she wouldn't be consuming mm -hmm. it. So what the hell happened in the pre-roll facility that suddenly made her um, uh, have an asthmatic reaction? Um, now they, they, uh, there's some debate whether they had the proper masks and the proper HEPA filters and all that. And I don't know, I don't know where that, all that landed. All I know is that by the time the CDC got in there to try to measure this retrospectively, um, the facility had already implemented some better HVAC to try to address this. So they, they responded to try to, you know, mitigate whatever risk they could. And, and no one really knew what it was like something airborne must've gotten to her. Um, so let's clean the air. Um, so that had a lot of people asking us, like, what is this? Is there some microbe that makes a toxin? Is there, uh, is the microbial testing to blame? Um, pre-rolls are notoriously higher in microbial content for whatever reason. They're either lower quality flowers that don't have bag appeal, or maybe they're the lower branches and there's higher concentration. You know, we don't know the answer for that, but they tend to have a higher microbial burden. Um, and, uh, maybe grinding them up is something that liberates more of them. 
and, and there is this possibility that they're, they're often um, decontaminated or radiated. Uh, now, we, we don't have good labeling here in Massachusetts to know if that was happening here or not. Um, so that was on the table. And we had a lot of people just asking questions like, what do we do for, uh, you know, we're not seeing patients die, but if, God, if the employees that are handling this stuff are dying, then you have mm. to assume there may be some artifacts that are hitting patients and they're just not getting maybe reported as being connected to their cannabis use. So um, that got me digging into the the literature a little bit on this. And um, someone I know who's an endotoxin specialist was like, oh yeah, you, you should you should know about this. I mean, the tobacco fields had to deal with this all the time. The tobacco cigarettes have endotoxin. And in fact, they don't think it's the tobacco that's killing people. They think it's the endotoxin. I mean, some small branch of people wow. believe this, that they're that the endotoxin is what's causing a, 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 um, a bronchial inflammation. And it's it's not really the nicotine that's doing this. This is uh, the, the other contaminants in the tobacco that tend to come along for the ride can create inflammation in the lungs and COPD and asthma and a host of other problems. So um, that put me down a rabbit hole of literature reading into this. Um, and then I stumbled across some literature that implied 40% of the bacteria on cannabis is gram negative. So it should be endotoxin loaded, um, which shocked me. I went over to our informatics guy, Steve, and said, is this true? Like search our database for everything we've ever sequenced. The one, the one nice thing we have here at NBC is there's like, you know, thousand samples of cannabis that have been sequenced, mostly stems, but some roots, some flowers and, and, and leaves uh, where we can measure like, what's the microbiome content of these things? And is it true that 40% of these things are in fact gram negative? And we come through that for about a day and we're like, yeah, the guy's right. There's actually a whole lot of uh, Klebsiella. There's a whole lot of, um, of these other gram negative bacteria that we're finding in the microbiome data. So um, that person's spot on. Um, what, do we, what do we do about this? Um, so that's kind of where the, the the project started is we said, all right, why don't we get ourselves an endotoxin assay kit? We can run that on like a qubit, which is one of these portable ferrometers. That's probably the cheapest thing you could ever purchase for a laboratory. Um, it's about, I don't know, $7,000 or something to buy this qubit. Uh, and uh, we use those for measuring DNA concentrations and RNA concentrations. They're, they're kind of a universal Swiss army knife, really affordable. Um, so we're like, all right, we can run it on that thing and assess um, if there's any endotoxin on 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 uh, pre rolls or, or or cannabis, and uh, that kind of evolved into asking different questions of like maybe we should look at cannabis that comes out of the dispensary system because we know it's tested to have low CFU, and let's look at some stuff that's in the hemp market that isn't tested. And usually, in our experience, the hemp market in Massachusetts has really high CFUs. Everything from from total use in mold, total rub counts, it's it's um, it's grown outdoors, probably using a lot of organic farming. Um, so, uh, we went around and, and, and got some samples from hemp facilities and then purchased some from dispensaries that had, uh, that had been through testing. We don't have any knowledge of, of whether they're using any decontamination techniques, but, um, we, uh, and when, one would naturally assume that when you decontaminate these things, you prevent the microbes from growing, but whatever's there is, uh, has endotoxins. So the decontamination doesn't get rid of that. Uh, and so it's quite likely that um, it, it, would, it would be remaining. So the, the hemp samples we picked up were like screaming hot, 3 million CFUs per gram, like off the scale hot, 30 times above the limit. And then of course, everything we pulled from the dispensary side was clean. Uh, like so very, very clean, <laughs> like almost zero, right. 100, maybe a thousand CFUs at most. Um, and then we went about running quantitative PCR on those, plating those, and then also looking at live dead with quantitative PCR. Because one thing we noticed with um, modern canna 
was that um, we have this live dead kit that gets rid of dead DNA. And when she was, I think it was um, um, oh, Ginny, Ginny, uh, I'm forgetting Ginny her, Glarus, name, yep. her name. Oh, that, that's it, Glarus, yeah. Um, so the uh, it, she, she did a nice study that she showed at CAMED last year where she was using live dead PCR uh, with Grim Reefer to look at irradiated samples. And she noticed that in some cases, the the, the Grim Reefer didn't get rid of all the DNA. It, it lowered it, but it still, in some cases, was testing hot, uh, whereas the plating was completely blank. And um, that got us looking into, okay, is our nuclease not working? Are there viable but not culturable cells there? Are there, is there something about um, uh, PCR that's just the irradiation can kill the organism but not destroy the DNA enough so some of the dead DNA is still around and the DNA can't get to it. We, we kind of went down this rabbit hole trying to figure out why can't we get the, the live dead qPCR um, to perfectly match plating after irradiation. Um, what she, I think, included from that study was that, okay, what we'll have to do is uh, enrich after um, irradiation to know if there's anything there. Um, that's viable. That way, uh, we can we can use live dead PCR and a little bit of enrichment, and, and perhaps you know sort this problem out. Uh, but it certainly left um, Tess and a few other people in the field like worried that if we build a, a a pipeline in cannabis, where people can grow the dirtiest stuff possible and then just blast it at the end, uh, just because it can counterfeit uh, a plating system, is that really safe? Like, what if what if it's loaded with mycotoxins and endotoxins and all this other garbage, and you're just finding a way to evade the detection tool that they're using in the industry by doing this irradiation thing? And then, of course, there's concerns over it's not labeled and the patients don't know about it. So um, it, it got us looking looking in that area a little bit more. And uh, I don't know. That's kind of, that's kind of how the project snowballed. Yeah. No. And thanks for that. And you, you did write up a great white paper, um, kind of summarizing this whole this whole study, which I'll put a link in the show description so people can read it. And so, I mean, you mentioned the results and there's a, there's a great graph in here that kind of shows that of sort of the endotoxin levels and then the pre and post Grim Reefer um, information here. And I mean, but when I look at that and, and tell me if I'm reading this correctly, that it looked like on every sample, there was a significant level of endotoxins. Is that right? Yeah. It, it, it was. And that was kind of the shocking thing that we found was that there wasn't a sample that was free of it. Um, now, it varied, you know, several orders of magnitude between the samples, but the right. lowest sample was several orders of magnitude over the decost limit, which, you know, we're going to have to assess in the field, like what, what that limit should be. The decost limit for people who know is it's a European standard for the amount of um, endotoxin that can be in breathable air. So they have it set at 90 EUs per square meter. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're dealing with a gram of cannabis, which is a million times smaller than a square meter. So, uh, and we're having numbers that are orders of magnitude higher on, on the cannabis. So, uh, I don't know if, if they've set a standard for like what that should be for an inhalable product, but I would assume that the inhalable product should, should probably be close to, uh, the, the limit for what's tolerable for the employees in the, in the air. Um, and there are some some studies listed in there from the CDC and from a couple of the parties where they went in to look at the endotoxin levels just in the air at certain work environments uh, in the cannabis field. Uh, the CDC had one study that showed that 40% of the employees were exposed to levels that were higher than um, in the trimming facility that were higher than the, the, the decost limits. Um, another study looked at this in hemp um, and a couple other like lung diseases that were showing up for workers that were, that were handling a lot of hemp. So there's, a, there have been a couple other data points looking at this. 
um, it's important to know that when the CDC went into this facility in Massachusetts, that's the that's what they began looking for. Um, they began looking at, at for endotoxin levels. So um, their radar is up on it, and that's what got us looking at it. Is we said, all right, if they're if, if that's what they're coming in to investigate, we should probably get an understanding of how much of this is actually just around on the flowers because we can't really find a whole lot of papers that speak to that. Um, we can find some things on tobacco and a couple studies that were done in these environmental exposure studies. So, um, so yeah, the, the numbers are, are, are very high. Um, I, I don't know if this, you know, obviously if this were so toxic, there's a lot of cannabis use out there. People yeah. would be dropping like flies. We don't, we don't see that. Um, yeah. I think what may have happened with this unfortunate case is that this person may have had a pre-existing condition of some sort, asthma, and this just was the hair that broke the camel's back. It, it maybe exacerbated the problem. And um, we got, we have to pay, you know, maybe, maybe close attention to uh, patient use in this case. So maybe the medical field needs to think a little bit more carefully about this. Um, I mean, the, the other thing that came up that wasn't really mentioned in the paper that but we've been pondering since then is, um, well, can we use gram positive bacteria as biocontrol agents to like outcompete this stuff so it's not around? And that's probably a really good idea. Bacillus is something that's commonly mm -hmm. used as a as a um, uh, biocontrol agent, and bacillus is gram positive. So maybe you flood the plants with bacillus, you can knock out all the gram negatives, and then we don't have this problem anymore. Um, so it, it may it may lead to um, better cultivation techniques. Um, you know, the the only challenge with bacillus. Our PCR tests will hit it on the TAC uh, amplicon. It won't hit it on the E. coli or the sex stuff, but the the TAC plates from 3M will light up with bacillus. So a lot of people are penalized right now for using biocontrol agents that might mitigate this problem uh, because the testing rec the testing tools they're using will pick it up. Um, and so it's really ironic because they have this testing platform that tries to grow everything on plates. And it's penalizing for using the biocontrol agents that could get rid of the gram negatives that in fact, the testing platform, you can then evade by radiating. It's this big like right. circular nonsense that uh, we've got high tech count. So we'll radiate it and it doesn't get rid of the endotoxin. Now you can put it on plates that uh, that basically don't show any growth when the real answer may have been to actually put bacillus on there that would fail your, your 3M plate and you wouldn't have the endotoxin problem. But um, yeah, we have a lot to learn, I think uh, in the microbial space and cannabis and what we do for this. But um, there are some some citations in the paper uh, talking about what these exposure levels are like, what they learned from the tobacco industry about this, and how they try and keep those levels down. Um, the tobacco industry is obviously a little bit different in that every tobacco cigarette tends to tends to have a filter on it, which we don't necessarily have on on mm -hmm. the cannabis stuff, so, and we don't know how much of that is is scrubbing the endotoxin out of the out of the smoke. But they do run tests on side stream and, and stuff through filters to see how much is coming through in tobacco. And they can in fact see it. Uh, I've not measured tobacco leaves themselves to see how much is on that. That's something we may do next week uh, when we get some new kits in, but, um, but yeah, the amount on cannabis flowers is high. Um, it does vary orders of magnitude, but it all seems to be above these D cost limits. And um, the next question is, can you, does, does pyrolytics kill this stuff? Right. Um, the the problem we have in the research field is that endotoxin is one of these things that when it's around, you can't autoclave your way out of it. It tends to survive autoclaves, which is like high pressure and heat. And, uh, you know, what we're using to vaporize cannabis is like low pressure and heat, but it's heat for like a brief period of time. And it doesn't, it doesn't torch the whole flower. It just torches the tip. So there's 
possibility that a lot of endotoxin can come out of smoke. I mean, that'd be a really interesting study if people can figure out how to capture um, endotoxin out of smoke streams. Some of the some of the people studying the vape pens um, would be, I think, wise to do that. There's there's actually literature of endotoxins in and tobacco vape pens. Oh yeah, um, that the tobacco process of people getting. I don't know how that happens because I don't think they're extracting nicotine from from plants. I thought figured that was just a chemical synthesis they put in those things, but they have they have noted endotoxin inside of um, tobacco vape pens. Uh, in, in which case, uh, I'm really curious to know how much of this stuff actually ends up in the cannabinoid oils because it 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 is it it's a molecule that looks like it's going to be more um, lipophilic um, and that it likes to be in a lipid bilayer. So will will it end up in the extraction enriched or will it end up in um, you know some other um, fraction fraction of the distillation process? I don't, I, a lot of lot more questions than answers we have right now. Yeah, and that would be particularly concerning because. Um, I mean, as I understand it, a lot of times a flower is failing for microbial, um, sort of the solution a lot of times is to extract it or turn it into distillate. And then, you know. Right. Uh, I always assumed of... that was the simple thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. In which case. Ethan Russo, yeah. yeah. Ethan Russo. And I think maybe it was Jeff Raber. Uh, a couple of people have done studies on some of the risks of, of extracting for safety. Uh, and, and one of the concerns was uh, pesticides and mycotoxins could enrich differentially in the uh, extraction process. Like the cannabinoids might go from 20% to 80%, but you can see the pesticides go from like, you know, parts per millions to parts per thousands. Like they, they would enrich to a higher degree than the cannabinoids themselves. And so they, they raised concerns over um, differential capture of those things. So th those are all good questions uh, that we have now for what this endotoxin can do. Um, so yeah, again, I, we've not seen people dropping like flies from endotoxins, but we, there is this, this fatality here in Mass, and it has got the federal government uh, looking under, uh, you know, the, the whole production process here. Uh, and if we are at the stage of maybe descheduling or going to Schedule Three, and there's going to be more federal um, overhang on mm -hmm. the cannabis industry, we probably have to start paying attention to what they're doing, and and, and start looking at. Um, the source of these of these contaminants. I mean, I'm I'm really intrigued by the the, the biocontrol agents with bacillus, just because um, if you could flood the plants with gram positives, then there's there's less less likely for there to be um, an issue there. And and likewise, there's a there's a I think a valid point to many of the I think the points you've seen uh, tests on, on LinkedIn raise. It's like, look, it's never a good manufacturing process to 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 do things dirty and mop up at the end, right? You you want to eventually build you know, some level of sterility into your grow. I mean, it can't be perfectly sterile. Obviously plants need microbes, but um, there is such a wide variation in the genetics that can, um, that, that in terms of their CFU that you get, like the, the work from Zamir was really interesting in that he showed the total yeast and mold ratios were or a genetic characteristic of the plant. So he had plants that would always have, genetically would just have higher yeast and mold burdens than other mm -hmm. lines. And it was something that, went with the genetics of, of what they're growing. So that tells, tells you something about, um, you know, we, we can find a way to breed cannabis that's low in these microbial burdens so that we don't have to mop up a mess at the end and wonder if there's mycotoxins or endotoxins that are coming through that we can't measure. Um, I mean, you know, th there are good ways to measure mycotoxins and, and now endotoxins. Um, it's just, uh, one of those things that doesn't shine through in every state. I don't think every state has mandatory mycotoxin testing. Um, and no one has endotoxin testing. And yeah. frankly, looking at the data we have now, I'd be like, forget the mycotoxin, look at the endotoxin because it's everywhere. 
it's when I talk to people who run the mycotoxin test, they're like, we almost never get a hit on those things. It's just yeah. like, it's almost <laughs> so testing. Why is it that mycotoxins became, you know, something that's required testing and endotoxins kind of went unnoticed? It's a good question. I mean, mycotoxins made their way in, into the food industry and, you know, there's, they are more of an oral ingestion risk because they, they tend to have effects on your liver. Um, whereas endotoxin isn't something that's, that's really an oral ingestion risk. So, you know, like the edible pipeline doesn't need to worry about this. It's really more of inhalation and injection. In fact, injection is the real thing that the FDA worries about because you get anaphylaxis and people drop, but inhalation is something I think has been one of these areas where, um, I mean, I have to look up the pharma regs for like, uh, the limits on this for, for like asthma inhalers and stuff. I'm sure they're very low, but I think when you get into the realm of like tobacco and cannabis, you're like, okay you guys are inhaling like, you know, pyrolytics anyway. So who cares about, about what, what else you're adding? You know, I, I just don't think that they've had the same like scrutiny. It's, it's almost as if you've, you've committed yourselves to performing at something risky. So you're probably not too concerned about the other risks that are there. And right. there's always this question, the flame probably destroys it all, right? Uh, it's probably not true given the temperatures that people vape at, but um, it, it certainly adds a, uh, an element of um, the pyrolytic seems to sometimes offer an out on, on, on what's present. So I, I have a feeling it has something to do with that. Just that um, if you're inhaling these, if you're willing to light something on fire and inhale it anyway, then no one's got a whole lot of sympathy if there's some contaminants around. But um, I think the medicine, when it comes to actual ingestion, uh, it probably does need to, we need to think about mycotoxins if they're at high levels. I, I've not seen a lot of people who test for those things. So they come out, you know, more than like 1% positivity in, uh, in testing. I always hear of like one in a thousand or one in 500 samples might pop positive for a mycotoxin test, but, uh, it's nowhere near the, um, it doesn't match the level of like 10% failing for total yeast and mold. You'd think if you had that much yeast and mold everywhere, you'd, you'd, you'd have some concordance with the actual, um, mycotoxin test. So, um, what we can see from this data is that, yeah, when there's bacteria there, um, and, and even when it's been zapped or it doesn't, it doesn't show, like we can see in this paper, there is, in some cases, there is um, bacterial DNA present and it doesn't grow. That tells us, okay, someone probably decontaminated this and the endotoxin is screaming high. Um, uh, so the, the DNA can maybe help navigate some of this. Um, but, uh, you know, when it comes down to um, some samples that are just totally, you know, no DNA, uh, no evidence of, of growth, but they're screaming high with endotoxin. Um, that's, I don't know, that, that's another matter. And uh, we probably have to understand what the lower limit um, can be uh, from, from a patient standpoint. Yeah. And the other point too, when you talk about sort of the pyrolytics or, you know, lighting it on fire might take, take care of the endotoxins might, you know, eliminate them, but it doesn't solve the problem of the people who are working in the production facility or, you know, the, like the, the person in Massachusetts. Right. Yeah, and I think you had a you had a podcast on with an aspergillus expert who who always yep. brings up this point that when they do these pyrolytic tests, that yeah, there's a very high temperature at the very at the end of the joint, but the rest of, of the joint is getting right. an elevated temperature, but not hot enough to destroy the spores. So you can get active spores coming out of a joint. In fact, we've seen this in the Bakersville case where they had cryptococcus infection of a patient, um, and um, they ended up with meningitis. Um, so yeah, the, the pre-rolls seem to be the part of the pipeline that's dirtiest, uh, and where we see the most fails and where we probably need to have the most attention. I mean, they have it in Oregon too. When we looked at the whole Oregon story they're when they turned on aspergillus testing, they were having like 10 to 20% failures in the pre-rolls. 
but their flowers were down at like two or three percent like california mm. and it's just a, a signal that we tried to make clear to the regulators that look you have a biological signal here that would satisfy a Bradford Hill criteria for causation. You you have what's known to be a dirtier process for making pre-rolls from, from all the scrap material that's testing hot. And you have, you know, high quality um, bag appeal flour that's testing low. Um, this, this is, a, this is the sign of something that's going on. <laughs> you know, we, we should look into this and, and maybe that maybe the pre-rolls have to go through a different decontamination process and maybe extra mycotoxin checks or something. But um, I think they've opted to just throw their hands in the air and, and move on. But um, the, uh, the, the, I mean, the data that we're seeing here in mass is, is uh, it's not something we can turn away from. I think the main argument they had in Oregon is, well, no one's ever found someone who got hurt from this. And that's, that's a fine argument if you put your head in the sand and you don't look, but we actually have a fatality here in Massachusetts and no one was necessarily looking for it. The person literally had to drop dead on the floor at work for people to pay attention to it. We don't know how many people are getting asthma attacks outside of uh, the workplace and just consuming from consuming purity cannabis. It's probably going um, unregistered. And that that is a problem with a lot of the, the cannabis literature out there is that for all the time of prohibition, we didn't have people running into the hospital declaring I'm a cannabis user. Help me. They were hiding it because it could get their kids taken away from them, you know, so. Uh, the the, uh, the the best we have right now are studies from like the CDC that point to insurance data showing that, okay, cannabis users have an elevated risk of, of um, fungal infections. And the ICD-10 codes like point to mucormycosis and aspergillosis as like the, the, the two top um, risk factors that are there. Uh, but uh, other than that, it's a lot of people sort of claiming, well, we never had to do this during prohibition, so why do we have to do it now? And um, that's 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 fine if you want to socialize the risks of the business, but uh, it's not necessarily, I think, where things are going to end up when um, the FDA gets involved, if they ever get involved. Yeah, and so is that where you're you're kind of hoping is one of the results of of looking into this is that we should kind of start looking or at least you know consider that endotoxins might be a factor here. I definitely think others should look into this. No one should take our work uh, alone. It's a preprint right now. It sure. needs to be reproduced. And and it should be reproduced in multiple jurisdictions before any regulator uh, gets crazy with this because uh, we don't know what this means. Um, I think what we want to see is lots of reproduction in the academic space or in, um, uh, you know, just in the scientific literature uh, and then uh, get some assessment as to, is this is this associated with other people having asthma attacks? Um, it is a very, of all the things that we can do in the cannabis field, this is probably the cheapest thing one can measure. And I'm sad to say we don't have any like revenue stream attached to this thing because it is a, uh, it's not our, it's not our technology. We're just buying this stuff from Thermo. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's very cheap. It's very, um, you know, small format. I don't know if you guys can see this, but uh, right there. Your background's weird. fighting against us here. Yeah, it is. I have to put it on my face for you to see it right <laughs> over my forehead. Maybe. <laughs> People listening can't see this, but this is basically a standard curve uh, of a LAL assay. It's it's a, it's one of these assays that um, has to get use a, an enzyme. If you send me a picture, I can superimpose it up there for you. Oh, yeah. It's probably one in the paper. Um, but yeah, it, it's... Um, so there, there's this uh, clotting factor in the blood of the horseshoe crab, which has blue blood, um, that actually, when endotoxin shows up, it creates a clotting cascade. And so they've they've hijacked that that enzyme to 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 create this sort of fluorometric assay that 
that basically um, gives you a different color based on the amount of endotoxins that's there. So, uh, I mean, this is something that runs in a portable uh, fluorometer that's that you could, it's smaller than a PCR machine. It's probably the cheapest thing anyone could possibly put into a cannabis testing laboratory. And it only, it's probably only, a, you know, 10 bucks a sample or something. So it is, it is really fast and cheap to run this. It's something that is run quite frequently in the um, pharmaceutical industry to make sure there's an endotoxin in any of the drugs um, and any injectables. Uh, so there's a large industry behind how to do this and do it properly. I mean, the, the one challenge that I think we've had with the assay is that you you do have to run this in matrix um, because the LAL assay, there isn't a really good way to purify endotoxin away from all the other stuff that it's with, um, which means you're, you're, you're having to take cannabis flour, homogenize it, dilute it really. We, we basically dilute it one to 10 after we've like put a gram of cannabis in 10 mLs, we take one microliter of that into and dilute it one to 10 and pop it into this assay and we get these screaming high signals. Um, but if you do, if you do it any more concentrated than that, the, the terpenes or I don't know what, but something seems to be interfering with the assay and you get an, you get an under recording of the event when you do that. Um, but you know, other than that, we've been able to go through probably two dozen samples now of, um, different flowers to show that we can get, we can, we can pick it up with this portable device that um, is, uh, is, is fairly cheap. Uh, the, 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 the reagents are very time sensitive. So the moment you crack them, you got to use them. Otherwise you start, it's the assay starts taking off on, on kind of background endotoxin. So um, that's the only downside of the one that, that we're using is it's, you can't like crack the vials and, and, and leave them out on the bench for two days and expect to get good results the next day. You have to kind of be really fast with it, but um, so yeah, I, I don't know where where it will go. I I hope um, the, the the other side of this is uh, that could be really interesting as a collaboration with a, a testing laboratory is that there are other techniques out there that measure endotoxin with mass spec and they're far more accurate and better, hmm. but they're far more expensive and they're not portable and you know this but but they're really good tools to to like validate like all right is this really working the way we need it to with the cannabis background that's there. Um, that's always good to have a second assay to kind of check the books on this stuff. Um, and so um, to the extent any other cannabis lab out there has done endotoxin testing, please reach out. We'd love to like share notes and how we could try to calibrate these things to each other um, and see if there's, uh, uh, you know, there might be a way people can just turn on their, turn their mass specs onto a different column or a different assay and, and uh, read this with equipment they already have. Um, but it would be a helpful study because I think as, as more and more of these decontamination tools come to market, we have to understand what it is we're hiding. Mm. You know, it's one thing to get rid of total aerobic count. Total aerobic count is one of these weird things where it's like, you don't really know if it's harmful or not. You're just counting total microbes. But, um, and, and when you start doing these cleanup techniques, um, yeah, you're getting rid of what can grow, but are you getting rid of what you're most worried about, which is the endotoxin? Um, it doesn't seem like this, this is, you know, we're blinding ourselves perhaps and giving ourselves a false sense of security with this. Uh, so this might be a tool that can help either guide that process. Um, I mean, one, one thing that we're we're working on next on this, um, and this is actually, I have to compliment um, uh, Tess. I'm forgetting her. I'm, I'm going to butcher her last name, but I think you know her from um, some of the great podcasts she's done and put on LinkedIn. Um, she looked at her paper and was like, this is cool. You know, you could do, do more replicates, which is always good advice. Um, and then what about getting rid of the gram? positive bacteria out there, would you get a better PCR correlation? Uh, if you look in our paper, our correlation between like qPCR and endotoxin is like 0.43. It's, it's, it's there, but it's not like you could use the qPCR to predict this. Uh, I think some of that lack of correlation is that 
we're not segregating the gram negative from the gram positive in our qPCR test. We're just measuring total aerobic count. Mm. Um, so we've gone and designed some PCR primers that are going to do try to do a better job of like only give me amplification from gram positives and only give me amplification from gram negatives. And then we can try to correlate the endotoxin levels with those PCR signals. And maybe those signals will like get a 0.6 or 0.7% correlation. And so the, the quantitative PCR tests would not only count all TAC, but would split them into two different channels of positives and negatives. Uh, in, in which case uh, they may have a little bit more predictive power to run after after decontamination to know, okay, how much how much residual DNA is here that was gram negative? Because the gram negative DNA is is what we want to make sure is is really low. Uh, that would tell us that the plant started with very little gram negative and therefore that's unlikely to have endotoxin. Um, so we're poking around at at um, some assays like that to see if they if they better inform on the topic. But um, to be honest, the, the the PCR might be helpful in the end. The um, the endotoxin stuff runs just as quickly. It's like a thirty minute assay, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, it it runs on a on a device that's um, uh, that's much like smaller footprint. It's just hard to parallelize. Like we can't run ninety six at a time without the reagents kind of you know going bad on you in the process of setting up ninety six assays. So um, we have it's great for running about eight at a time, uh, and then um, you have to. Uh, probably start over with another strip tube of eight, but um, the PCR stuff we can really crank through and it might help us inform on, um, all right, what's, what's going on with uh, this, the, the whole decontamination process. Excellent. Well, it seems like uh, definitely an interesting uh, line of inquiry that uh, we're going to continue to, to look into. Um, in the meantime, is there, other resources you you would like to point the audience to that they can learn more about this, or uh, if you want to share any ways that they can get in touch with you, uh, please do. Well, certainly, yeah, you can find me at this uh, medicinal genomics um, at that address, and then um, I think I put a Substack up on this. But there, there's the there's the preprint we have. I, I'd yep. start there. I think the preprint has a good list of like. What have other regulators looked at in the cannabis field regarding endotoxin? What's in the tobacco field? What are the what are the limits people have had in the past? And um, and there are sort of first go at this. And I, I would caution folks, we just started doing this in like November. So we're by no means experts at this, but we figured when the data came out, like as loud as it was, we're like, all right, we got to at least get this out there and let others know and see if anyone else can like tell us where we're wrong or which direction we should go. So uh, if others are interested in studying this, like bring us up. Uh, we're we're open for collaboration on this because uh, this is something that is is kind of uh, new to us, at least in the cannabis field, uh, and uh, we're kind of interested in where this uh, where this may lead. So um, feel free to drop us a note at uh, uh, you can get to my email at um, kevin.mckernan at medicinalgenomics.com. Excellent. All right, Kevin. Thanks again for the time, and um, see you around the office. All right. Yeah. Take care. <laughs>
While you're there, be sure to sign up for email alerts to get notified about future event announcements. And don't forget to register for your CanMed 24 ticket package. Tickets are limited this year and demand is high, so don't wait. Also, we'd appreciate it if you follow us on social media. We are on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and X. Just search for CanMed events. And finally, we'd appreciate it if you rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you use to consume the podcast. All right, and that's it from us. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.